we go. All right, and hopefully you have sound now, those of you that didn't before, yes? Okay, um, maybe turn your volume up. We are in Revelation chapter one. We left off right around verse uh, eight or nine. I'm gonna read it from the beginning just to give you the sort of context of where we are. Um, what's going on is John is a very old man. All the other disciples are deceased at this point. It is almost certainly around the year 95 AD. Give you a time marker. Jesus died more than 60 years ago. John is an old man. He has been silenced from preaching the gospel, or so the authorities think, and they have exiled him to what's sort of like a, an island prison without walls where he's supposed to work in mines, uh, mining marble. It is in this isolation where God uses him mightily. God gives him this book of Revelation and tells him to write it down. So it's a glorious view of Jesus that we, if you've only read the Gospels, you've never seen this Jesus as he really is now. Um, so let's go ahead and read from chapter 1, verse 1. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Oh, that's a good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Beautiful. Okay. Revelation 1. And we're, we're just going to read this part and then we'll pick it up right, like I said, around verse uh, 8 or 9. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one, or blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart or keep what is written in it, because the time is near. I've been saying in the emails, this is the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing for those who read it and those who hear the study and keep it and learn it. Kind of a cool thing. John, verse four, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. He's writing to seven specific churches. He's going to name them shortly, and then there's going to be one letter to each church before we get to all the flowery language and the symbolism and what have you, starting in chapter four. John, to the seven churches, verse four, in the province of Asia, that's modern-day Turkey. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Right there, you had the whole trinity. Him, back, back in verse 4, who is, who was, and who is to come, the eternality of God the Father. Next verse uh, next part of that same verse, the seven spirits, that's the sevenfold or seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, we said last week. Next, there's Jesus Christ, verse 5. The whole Trinity is in these two verses, who is the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We discussed all that last week. And he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then suddenly there's this, behold, or look, verse 7. He's coming with the clouds. He's talking about Christ's second coming. And every eye will see him. Not a secret coming, we said last week. 
even those who pierced him. Talking about the Jews, we talked about that last week. They're not solely to blame for the crucifixion. Uh, every sinner is to blame in a sense, right? And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. And then the speaker says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We already talked about that. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying I'm, I'm the A to Z. I'm everything in between. Um, he is. He takes on the name, uh, Jesus does, of God the Father uh, in so many ways, and the Almighty. Um, but verse 8 is referring mostly to the Father, at least it was in verse 4. But in Revelation 22, it's Jesus with the same title. I showed you that last week. Um, so verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ. By the way, that word for suffering is the same word for tribulation. Uh, in some translations, suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's a prisoner there. It's a very desolate island, six feet, six miles by 10 miles, and they mine um, marble there. So the prisoners usually would have to work in the marble mines uh, as slave labor, so to speak. So he is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been witnessing for Christ and the authorities have arrested him, convicted him and placed him there as the only disciple that doesn't die a martyr's death. Uh, and he lives the longest by far. Um, so I think we covered verse nine a little bit last uh, time, sort of like an Alcatraz, but without the prison, just an island type thing. Uh, verse 10, interesting verse. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Okay, so let's take that apart. He was in the spirit. Now, there are verses, Galatians has a verse, there's several of them that talk about Christians ought to be walking in the spirit, walking in obedience, walking with a conscious um knowledge that we are Jesus's and we are be, to be obeying and living out our Christian life. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, he's talking about uh, using Old Testament words for the whole um, thing that you see in the Old Testament where someone gets a vision. It's sort of an ecstatic experience. I, I hesitate to use this term, but it's almost like a Christian out-of-body experience. Usually when you hear out-of-body experience, you're talking occult, you're talking spiritism, the dark side of things. This is Jesus is going to show him tremendous visions, and yet he's there in Patmos, um, at least for part of it till we get to chapter four. So he, it is the Lord's day. Now, this is, John is an Orthodox Jewish guy. The Lord's day was always Saturday for Jews, Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. For Jewish believers to come to believe Jesus was the Messiah and change the day of worship was an incredible thing. And that's what happened. In 1 Corinthians, in Acts, there are all kinds of places where you see Christians worshiping on 
the first day of the week, not the seventh day. Sunday, what we would call Sunday, because that's the day the Lord rose from the dead. So he's saying on the Lord's day, on Sunday, um, that he was in this sort of ecstatic experience um, so that God could reveal things to him supernaturally, um, almost like a trance, but not, that all sounds so occult. In a Christian way, God is the one um, taking hold of him. Um, we already talked about that. That term uh, in the spirit occurs four times in this book here, once in heaven in chapter four, once in the wilderness, chapter 17, and once on the mountain of God in chapter 21. Um, let's see. Interestingly, the world, that part of the world, most of the world is controlled by the Roman emperor, the Roman empire at that time. And guess what the first day of the week was? The emperor's day, where you were supposed to worship the emperor. John is a believer worshiping the true emperor of the universe, Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, clearly it's Sunday. By the way, um, we won't go there now, but Colossians 2 talks about worship days, okay, as does Romans. Romans says, if you want to worship on Tuesday or on Friday, and that's your day, go for it. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Colossians 2, 16, 17, right in there, talks about, don't let anybody judge you with regard to in fact, let's go there really fast. Go to Colossians. Take a left from Revelation and go back to after the Gospels. Go back to Philippians and Colossians and Galatians, that whole section. Galatians is first, then Ephesians, then Philippians, and then Colossians. I'll just read it real fast. If you can't find it, that's okay. Colossians 2, verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Remember the Jews had all those kosher and non-kosher laws. He's saying that's out the window now. Don't let anybody judge you with regard to that. You want to have a ham sandwich? Go for it. Pork chops, bacon. Don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a, watch this, religious festival, which is annual, like Passover, um, Yom Kippur, all the different Jewish holidays. He's saying don't let anybody judge you with regard to those things. He's going to put all of those things in one box in a second. Watch or a new moon celebration. Religious festival is annual once a year. New moon is once a month. The Jews had things they did with those. Or a Sabbath day, that's once a week. There's the Sabbath day. What are those things, Paul, verse 17? These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, the reality is found in Christ. All right, now go back to Revelation, if you will. Um, let's keep rolling. Let's see, verse 10. So, uh, so he's in this ecstatic experience, this kind of a vision thing on the Lord's day, verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So it's one of those things where the auditory signal comes first. He hasn't seen anything yet. He just hears the voice. Keep in mind, although Jesus has been dead more than 60 years and John's an old man, he remembers his friend, Jesus, right? To where if you haven't heard somebody's voice in a long time and they call your name, you know, don't you? It's so -and it's Tom or it's Wendy or whoever. He hears the voice and he doesn't recognize it. 
He doesn't say, I heard a voice and I knew right away it was Jesus. Jesus sounds, and he's about to find out, looks very different from what he remembers. Watch. Um, I heard a voice behind, uh, behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet, clear, very, very loud, right? Little scary, right? Makes you jump. Uh, trumpets in the Old Testament uh, appear often. Let's face it, the second coming is accompanied by a trump, trumpet, rapture, trumpet, trumpet as well. Verse 11, and the voice said, which said, verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To, and here they are, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and that's not in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven churches in what is now Western Turkey. They form kind of a horseshoe shape, almost a circle. They were the seven postal zones. There were other churches in Turkey that he doesn't mention. Remember Colossians? That's a church there, not one of the seven. We don't know exactly why, but it's one of the postal zones churches that John would be familiar with. So he is supposed to write on a scroll. That's how they wrote in those days, not a book. A scroll would be papyrus, which was a plant that found in Egypt. They imported it. Uh, we, when we were in Egypt, we saw how they um, compress it and um, sort of rub it on rock to make it like paper, and they would make scrolls of it that were usually around 15 foot feet long. Depends on the length of the book they're writing. So that Isaiah might be seven scrolls worth. It wouldn't be one giant scroll kind of thing. He's saying, get a scroll and write down everything. Take notes. And he's going to have to make at least six copies, right? Because he's got to send it to those seven churches probably going to keep a copy for himself. And then those would be widely distributed and copied as well. This is about the whole book of Revelation he's going to talk about. We'll, we'll see that in a second. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, so he hears the voice who says, write, it, write down what you see, send it to those seven churches. We're going to get into those. Chapter two and three of Revelation are the seven letters to the seven churches. Who wrote those? Was it Paul? John? No. Believe it or not, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. Interestingly, Paul wrote to seven churches, if you remember. Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonica, that kind of thing. Okay, so he's so far he's just turned, he hasn't turned around to see the person. He's just heard this voice behind him, behind him instructing him to write. That, that instruction happens 12 times in the book of Revelation. Write down what you see. Don't miss anything kind of thing. Um, we already talked about that. So verse, let's see, are we up to verse 12? We are. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I didn't see the dude. He sees something else instead. In other words, wherever he was on that island, He's now transported somewhere else, even though he's still in that island in some kind of a trance, but in this new virtual reality, God's virtual reality that he's in, when he turns around, he's seeing stuff that he knows that wasn't there a minute ago. And so the first thing he sees, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was a person, the person talking. 
Let's talk about the lampstands first of all. We're about to learn that the lampstands are churches. That's what they symbolize. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was a single lampstand. This would be sort of like, if you can picture, um, like a mic stand about five, six feet, four and a half, five feet tall, okay, uh, on a pole. And there was one of those with seven uh, candelabra type things there, menorah, right? Some of you know about that. That's in the Jewish temple. This is not one, seven. Very much there's diversity in churches, but they're all God's church, just like Israel was God's mouthpiece, the one candelabra. So he turns around and sees seven golden lampstands. Um, verse 12, yeah. Um, so he's, this is, it goes back to Zechariah 4. He's now kind of saying Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, okay? They um, had apostatized. That's a fancy word. It means they, they kind of went off the rails spiritually, had idols, went through the motions of all the sacrifice, but they were, um, it wasn't religion of the heart. It wasn't a relationship. So he's saying that the churches are now lampstands. Um, we're going to get to this, but the lampstands are supposed to be broadcasting the light of Jesus Christ. The thing is, the lampstands in and of themselves, I'm going to show you, have no light whatsoever. Takes two other things, maybe three. The guy standing amongst them, we'll talk about that. The oil, which is the fuel, which is the Holy Spirit, and fire, right? Without that, a lampstand is never going to show light unless someone puts fuel in it and lights it. In the uh, temple, the priests every day would trim the wicks, clean the soot away of these of that one lampstand to keep the light burning continually, um, uh, care for the lamps, inspect them and what have you. Now the priests aren't doing it. Somebody else is, whoever this trumpet-voiced dude is. It's almost like he's got a huge PA system, but he doesn't need it because his voice is so powerful. His words are, I turn to see the voice the seven golden lampstands, those are going to represent those seven churches we talked about. Those seven churches, we'll, we'll mention this again, represent, that's not just seven churches, it's all the churches of Christ all over the world that have ever existed. Keep that in the back of your mind. I don't want you to think, oh, it's a letter to them. I'm reading somebody else's mail. Can we move on? This is a letter to you. Each one of these letters are to you. How do you know that? We said last week, each letter to the seven churches ends with the same phrase. Do you remember? He who has an ear, do you have an ear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that means all these messages, the one to Thyatira, the one to Ephesus, they're all for you. Because in those seven churches, we're going to see ourselves in some way or another, to some extent or another. And among, verse 13, among the lampstands was, NIV has someone, it's really one, like a son of man, we'll come back to that phrase, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Can you picture this? Okay. To you and I, that's just a dude in a robe. Well, that's not a bathrobe. It's a fancy robe, 
Okay. And we just say, okay, move on. John's Jewish. He's a Christian, but he went to synagogue, went to the temple. He recognizes immediately, number one, a robe signifies wealth, power, and great authority. Wealthy, powerful people wore long robes. If you've ever worn a really long robe, you can't work in it or run in it or do much of anything in it because it's encumbering. But those that were wealthy had other people to do the work. Powerful people had other people to do the work. And so whoever this person is, it's a picture of power and authority. But beyond that, he doesn't just think that because he sees the golden sash across the chest, recognizes this is exactly like what the high priest would wear in the temple. So he's got seven lampstands, not one. Seven's the number of completion we said last week and maturity, fullness. And he's got the, this guy uh, and he doesn't recognize him immediately. You'll see the description is very different. Um, so the high priest, Jesus is called our high priest in Hebrews 4, 14, by the way. Um, it's interesting that the high priest had a band around his chest with, listen to this, some golden threads, okay? Not, not the whole um, sash, but there were some golden threads in it. What's your point, Joe? Whoever this guy is, he's so much greater than the high priest. It's a gold, it's all gold, his uh, sash across his chest. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, so we're getting this picture of somebody that it looks like a high priest in a major way, in a way that Jewish high priests never were. Um, let's see. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Interesting. Now listen, in Western culture in which we live, right? What used to be, even in Western culture, has been going away, okay? And that is a great respect for older people, white hairs, okay? There, is, there are scriptures that talk about this in the uh, Old Testament. So when you say white hair, there are people that say, and it may be true as well, okay, white is purity, and that's biblical. You could make the case for that. He does say as white as snow. But you can't get away from the fact that he's talking about his hair. And he's not going gray. It's white, solid white. Okay. John Piper spends 10 minutes on this and, it's, and his sermon, and it's wonderful. And he says, you want to get away from this whole thing that he's old, really, really, really old, but that's just what John wants you to know. He's really old. Now, when we hear that, somebody that's really old, right, is 100. I have an aunt in New York that's 103 years old, my dad's sister. And um, there's people that live to be 115, 118, really, really, really old. When we hear that as humans, and this is no ordinary human. He's like a son of man. We'll come back to that. But when we hear that old white hair, we think, oh, mentally, he's not what he was. Physically, he's slowing down. Surely, if he's that old, that's not his point. His point is just the opposite, that he's 
so old, he's from everlasting in the past, okay? And so if white hair on somebody that's 80 signifies wisdom, that's what we're supposed to see in it. He's saying, imagine a guy that's a couple hundred trillion years old and that was only day one. Imagine the wisdom. Imagine the, the uh, godliness. By the way, we're going to take a detour in a second. Um, in fact, let's do it now. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. So from Revelation, the easiest way to find Daniel is go to the middle of the Bible and take a right. You'll, you'll find maybe Isaiah, maybe Psalms, Proverbs. Just take a right. You'll go past Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Just keep going. And, and after Ezekiel, which is a big, long book, you'll find Daniel. Go to chapter 7. I want you to see this. We said before, almost 70% of the verses in Revelation have a correlation verse that they're referring to in the Old Testament. Usually Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, but there's others. Daniel 7, I'm on the wrong page. Uh, if you can't find it, that's all right. So he has a vision. Daniel, very similar to John, has an ecstatic experience, this vision God gives him. Um, let's see, he sees the beast. That, we'll talk about that in chapter 13. But look at verse 13 of Daniel 7. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Sound familiar? It's the same, isn't it? Okay, Stop right there. Son of man is Jesus's favorite name for himself. He seldom says I. He says the son of man must be betrayed. The son of man, you know, has come to save the world. He says all this stuff about the son of man. Jews would understand this is a messianic or messiah title. Okay. It's an ironic title. What do you mean? I mean this. He's like a son of man. Now, if, if someone's a man and they have a son, I said this in the sermon Sunday, right? What is it? Definitely. It's another human being. It's another man. This is, he looks like a man, but an exalted man. He's like a son of man. He is the Messiah, but now we're seeing him in the glorified state, not the baby in, in um, Bethlehem, not the guy bleeding and, and swollen and bloody on the cross, not even the exalted Christ ascending to heaven. Even John barely recognizes him. The voice is different. The look is different. We'll see, but there's a lot more. Okay, back to Daniel 7. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, not as, not as loud. Um, there like a son of man before me, coming with the clouds of heaven. Sounds just like Revelation. He, who's he? The son of man. Approached the ancient of days. Who's that? God the Father. And God the Father is not at all ashamed to say, I am ancient, right? We would say it as somebody, that I'm, I'm so getting so old now. Here it is on my birthday, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. Not that old. Ancient of day. From everlasting, he always existed. So did the Christ, second person of the Trinity. He approached the ancient of days. So here's Jesus, the Messiah, approaching God the Father. They're not the same person, you notice. They are one in essence. They're both God, but the Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He, that's the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, verse 14, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. What's sovereign power? Total power. 
right? President Biden is not sovereign. He doesn't have total power. If he, if he did, it would only be in the United States. He would have no power in D Denmark or Japan, right? This is sovereign power, period. Jesus has given authority, glory, sovereign power. Well, how extensive is it, Daniel? All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. Daniel is seeing the future when Jesus is glorified and is worshiped by all different uh, walks of life, all different nations, languages. His dominion is how long will it last? Joe Biden's in for four years. If he gets reelected, it'd be four more. That's a spit in the ocean compared to his dominion is what? An everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus Christ. That's what's being referred to. John's an Orthodox Jew. He was in the past. Now he's a Christian. He would remember, this is just like Daniel, except I'm getting a bird's eye view of this. Um, let's see, are we, are we going back to Revelation? I think we are. Uh, yes. But the, the white hair connects him to the Ancient of Days who is also ancient of days. He's also got white hair. Doesn't in any way mean he's old and decrepit and weak and starting to lose it mentally. Just the opposite, okay? We are to honor our elderly, amen? Especially me. Okay, let's move, let's move on. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, go back to Revelation 13. He's like a son of man. But this John recognizes immediately it's the Messiah, but he's like a human being. Now, everybody in this room is a human being. He has two natures, fully God, fully man. He's like a son of man. Occasionally, by the way, prophets were called son of man, but the majority of the time in the Old Testament, the title son of man is for the Messiah. Wanted to mention that. His hair on his head, verse 14 white like wool, white as snow. And lest you think he's kind of fading away, his eyes were like blazing fire. Fire, Old Testament and New speaks of judgment. It also speaks of the all-seeing nature of his eyes, that there's nothing you can hide from me and I can hide from you, and God sees and knows everything. We'll see that again and again in this book. So whoever this figure is, with the robe, with the golden sash, with completely white hair. He looks very different from how John remembers him on the cross. Jesus dies right around 33 or so years old, could be a little older, not much. We know he's not 40 um, from the scriptures. So he's unusual looking. His eyes were like blazing fire. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing. In a furnace, you say, no, I've never seen anybody like this. This is like a special effects sci-fi movie, right? His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. You ever been to Niagara Falls? And not only do you get wet if you're close, but the sound, you can almost feel the rumble of the water under your feet. It's just, it's overwhelming. And John is overwhelmed here, we're about to see. So why the feet? Okay, brass, bronze, some fine brass or bronze, some translations have. Fire is associated with judgment. This is somebody that has been through 
judgment. And his feet are glowing, if you will, from that uh, judgment, refined purity. Remember, there was no sin found in Jesus, right? When we're judged, some of us and what we've done in our lives will be burned away, wood, hay, and stubble. The good stuff, silver, gold, precious stones, it's a symbolism thing, will be retained. But Jesus, no sin. That's why he can stand there with those sorts of that look to his feet, sacrifice, judgment, and he took the judgment, if you will. Um, the altar of sacrifice at the temple was made of brass, Exodus 27, a brazen altar. At that time, it was the strongest metal in the ancient world. It shows stability and permanence that his feet look like this. John's turned to see this guy, and it's no ordinary human being. It's like a son of man, but it's a little freaky. It's a little scary to him. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. Old Testament has a lot of these same attributes and titles. God, the Father, is Alpha and Omega, first and the last. Old Testament, so is Christ, because they're both God. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, the feet. And his voice like the sound of rushing waters. John was an intimate, close friend of the Lord Jesus. He heard Jesus whisper. He heard Jesus speak lovingly. He's heard him in a conversational tone. That's all out the window now. It, it's so awesome. He want, God wants to show John. Remember, the name of the book is The Revelation Apocalypsis, unveiling of a person, Jesus Christ. And this is not the Jesus John remembers, or Mary would remember the little baby and the little boy, and he's completely glorified and exalted. The point is, this ain't the fleshly Jesus, if you will, um, completely exalted. Okay, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, you have to remember, even though we're only in chapter one, and the real symbolic, flowery, metaphorical language starts happening in chapter four, it's already happening here. Because I don't want you to picture him, oh, ha, ha, a giant sword coming out of his mouth. There's two words for sword in the Bible. There's machaira, which is a short sword. That's what Peter had and chopped off the ear of, remember, Malchus, the high priest's servant, short almost a little longer than a dagger. This is a big, long sword. He doesn't have that coming out of his mouth. Literally, this is symbolism. You say, okay, well, how do you know that? And what, what does it mean? And what are these seven stars? Note, let's finish that verse. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Translation, don't go outside and do this. But if you tried, you couldn't look at the sun, right? You just, it's too bright. That's the picture he's getting here. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, for a second, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John high up on a mountain. Do you remember that? And shows them from the Clark Kent disguise that he has on of a dude in a robe, he sort of pulls back Clark Kent's suit to show the big S, not for Superman, but for God, right? He's shining like the sun. They can't even look at him. 
Okay, same sort of thing. Let's take this apart. Let's start with the seven stars are in his hand. Thank God, sometimes in Revelation, not that often, but sometimes God gives you the playbook where he tells you the seven stars are this. The seven churches are this. This is one of those things. Look at verse 20, same chapter, chapter one of Revelation. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Those of us that teach the Bible love it when God goes, here's what this means exactly. Some parables of Jesus, if you remember, they, he tells a parable and the, and the, and the apostles kind of do this like, what? And then he takes them aside and says, here's what I meant by that. Four types of soil. They're like, right? I love that. It makes my job so much easier trying to teach this book, especially Revelation. So go back to 16. He's got seven stars in his hand, and the seven stars are the seven, listen, agalos. That's the Greek word. Sounds like angelos, like Los Angeles, right? Angels. He's got seven angels in his hand. Wait a minute. The letters are to the seven angels. John can't write a letter to angels. What's going on here? They're not angels. The word agalos means, listen, messengers. Sometimes they're uh, supernatural beings, angels, like you would think of Gabriel or one of the other angels, right? Michael. But here, most scholars think, you're going to hear me say that a lot in this book, because when we're not positive, most scholars believe these are the seven pastors, elders of those churches. Oh, so he's only writing to them? No, they're supposed to distribute the message to their whole church. But he's writing to the seven leaders, elders, pastors of those churches. That's what he's got. Where are those pastors? They're all over the map. No, they're not. They're in his hand, his right hand. Shows total control. Even though the pastor thinks he's in control, the pastor doesn't even know. Guess what? God's got this. He's got you in his hand. Okay. So the seven leaders or pastors of those churches, seven, again, the number of completion. Translation, remember the old song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole church in his hand. It may look out of control, and some churches are. God's in control, right? Not all churches who say they're Christian are Christian. Keep that in mind. Okay, so this is the word rompeia, rompeia in Greek. We already said it's a very large sword. So back to verse 16, seven stars. We talked about that, the seven leaders of those churches who are messengers to the church. Coming out of his mouth, a sharp, double-edged sword. Okay, what is this? We learn from Revelation 19, it, and here, it's God's, Christ's only, listen, weapon. We learn from the book of Hebrews that the word of God is a sharp, double-edged sword. So it, maybe John sees a sword for symbolic sake, but what this means is it is Christ's word. He does not need a weapon. His weapon is 
When he speaks, it happens. How did God create the world? Speaking things into existence. Could we do that? No, we're not God, right? You name it and claim it, people say, yes, you can do that. I don't see it in scripture, but it's a sharp double-edged sword. Why, why double-edged? Well, it's double the weapon, right? First of all, but a lot of the commentators said this. I love this. It's double-edged in that the same word of God that goes right, cuts right to your heart and your sin and your conscience and makes you obey the other side of that sword is for those that disobey permanently and don't believe, that sword is a major weapon. It's for our good, it is their judgment. And yet it's the same sword, the word that he um, speaks. Um, that's Hebrews 4.12 about the word of God being a sharp double-edged sword. Um, in the armor of God in Ephesians 6, do you remember that? Dealing with Satan. How do we deal with Satan? I'm just going to rebuke him myself. Eh, wrong. Nowhere in the Bible. Resist the devil. Yes. Rebuke him. No. What's Ephesians 6 all about? Dealing with Satan and demons. It says, get dressed for battle. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. There's only one. It's all defensive clothing except the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay. He's saying that what comes out of the Messiah's mouth is the word of God. And that's all the power he needs. So that's what that is. Um, we won't look at those verses right now. We will later though. Um, so that's amazing power, right? Double-edged grace for those who repent judgment for those who are disobedient. Okay. Let's keep reading. Amazing description. His feet, his hair, his eyes blazing fire, the seven stars in his hand. John says, I've never seen anything like this. Sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's going to come back later in Revelation and 19 uh, and elsewhere. His face or countenance, King James has, was like the sun shining its, in all its brilliance. We talked about that a little earlier. He's glowing. What's interesting is, if you remember the Old Testament, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the word, talk to God, comes back down and doesn't know it, but because he's been with God, he's luminescent, he's kind of glowing. Do you remember that? And people are afraid and people are impressed, and it kind of goes to Moses's head a little. Do you remember? To where when the glow is starting to fade, he wants to hide that from people so they don't know that like, you're not as bright as you used to be there, Mo. Um, his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. Keep your finger here and go to Matthew 17. We're going to take another detour. Matthew 17, I mentioned it earlier. Take a left, a long left, first book of the New Testament. Matthew uh, 17. So he takes Peter, James, and John, the inner core, up on a mountain. Verse 2 of chapter 17 of Matthew. There he was transfigured, changed before them. His face shone like the, what? There it is again. He's giving them a glimpse of, this is how you're going to see me in the future, right? Peter and James are already in heaven. They're seeing him that way. John's still on the earth and Jesus is going, I'm going to give you a little sneak preview, coming attractions. Here's what I really look like now. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. 
What's interesting in 17 is who shows up? Moses and Elijah. Do you see that? How could that be? It just is. Both of them have weird things around their departure. Do you remember? Elijah just gets taken up to heaven. Do you remember? But wait a minute, you say Moses died. What's he doing here? At the end of, uh, in the Old Testament, when Moses dies, there's a weird sentence. Do you remember? Who, anybody know? Who buried Moses? God. Well, where's his grave? We don't know. It's a good thing. If we knew, Jews would be there touching the gravestone. They'd be selling little mini Moses dolls with a little parting Red Sea picture. You know, you could take your picture. It would be a little shrine. We don't know where. But in Jude, it says that Michael, when Moses died, Michael has a fight with Satan about the body of Moses. Because God says, yes, I know. Because you're now the God, small g, of this earth, Moses, uh, Satan, you have, that's why there's death and decay. And Satan says, okay, Moses, your guy is dead. Hand him over. And God says, no, I buried him. Stay away. Moses, I'm sorry, Michael, and the, this is in Jude. It's right around verse eight or nine. I don't want to go there because we're taking too many detours and we got to take our two minute break in a second. Moses is God has plans for Moses in the future. When? Mount of Transfiguration. It's the real Moses and the real Elijah that show up. What's the point of that? Say that again. Vic gets an A. That They represent the law, Moses, and the prophets. The Jews refer to the whole Old Testament, all of Judaism, as the law and the prophets. And there they are, the two guys. So he's got three Jewish followers, G Peter, James, John, with him. He wants them to know who he is. So he's shining with bright light. Notice in Matthew 17, Elijah and Moses are not shining. Okay. But Peter sticks his foot in his mouth, verse four, as he often does. Oh, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we can build three tabernacles, three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Translation, oh, I get it. You're on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah. This is impressive. Like the three stooges, we got Moses and Elijah and you. I, I'm saying that with a, my tongue in cheek. I get it. You're on an equal basis with the prophets. Just then in 17, a bright cloud envelops them, verse 5, and the voice from heaven, from the cloud, that's God, says... This is my son, singular, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Not all three of them. Not that I'm not taking anything away from the Old Testament. We do study it, and we should. He's saying this guy that's shining is the one. Hear him. Let's take our two-minute break. We're late. That's just to stretch our aging bodies. Don't go far. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. And there's cake out on the table. We'll be back in two minutes. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. I'll be right back. There we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. Let me put my chair in position here. Um, find your seats. Those of you that are here, everybody's eating cake back there. Um, so this is quite a vision so far, and we're just getting started. 
Um, his face is shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. If John recognizes, and that's what Vic and I were just talking about, does Vic recognize, wow, this is incredible, but it is Jesus. I don't know yet at this point, but Jesus was his friend. You hear people that say, I, you know, questionable preachers, I'll call them, who say, I was escorted into heaven, and I, you know, I gave Jesus a high five, and let's see, Tom's back there going, no, and you're right. Um, Let's see. Oh, just got a text. Okay. Um, Look at verse 17. With all this brilliance, the feet, the eyes, the hair, the dress of the high priest, the face shining like the sun. John does what a lot of people do. He does what Daniel and Ezekiel did when God shows up. He does not give them a high five or a hug. He freaks out. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is absolute I remember Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he say? Hey, God, how are you doing? No. What does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. You're so perfectly holy. I'm, I'm, I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams, basically, is what he says. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. I'm going to skip that for now. He knows he's seeing a supernatural person. This freaking out thing, Ezekiel, Daniel twice, um, uh, happens quite often. Okay. He falls at his feet as though dead, overwhelmed by the glory of the risen Christ. There's no, hey, Jesus, it's me, John. He can't believe what he's seeing. Then he, that's Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, King James, fear not. NIV, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm not Jesus of Nazareth. He is, but he is the exalted, glorified Jesus of Nazareth. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. He's, God does this a lot in the Bible. Fear not. I'm the first and the last. Don't be afraid. Now he's taken a title used for God in several places uh, in the Old Testament. Um, Yeah, uh, let's see. So maybe because his voice is so foreign and his appearance is so foreign, the one thing that John could remember from Galilee when he hung out with this guy for three years might be his touch. So he touches him and says, don't be afraid. I think it's beautiful. As powerful and awesome as he is, and scary even, he says, don't be afraid. Before I forget, if I, if I do forget these two things, help me remember. Chapter 11 of Revelation and Aslan from the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, chapter 11. Remember I said earlier, God had other plans for Moses and Elijah. They show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Most scholars, not all, but I believe, think that chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, there's two mysterious Jewish dudes that show up, and it's Moses and Elijah 
again, the two witnesses in chapter 11. Don't turn there now, but we'll get there probably in 20 years when we're up to chapter 11. That's how slow we go here. He falls at his feet as though dead. Um, I got to read one note that I wrote from a commentary, if I can find it. Here it is. Charles Spurgeon, we are never so much alive as when we are dead at his feet, just worshiping him, falling at his feet. I got nothing. And that's the time that we're the most alive. When we're the least alive is when we think we're so great and God owes me and God thinks I'm so wonderful and pride, right? Uh, let's see. So the touch might've been familiar to him. It's a command. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. For believers, this awesome figure holds nothing for you and I to be afraid of. Nothing. All that judgment, Jesus took it on the cross. All there is is love left for you and me. For unbelievers, yikes. Remember we said last week, later in this book, they're saying, let the rocks and the mountains fall on us. Hide our face from his face. We don't want to see him. It's an awesome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's another way of saying the alpha and the omega. I, I am everything in between, A to the Z. The living one, verse 18 says, I was dead and now behold or look, I am alive forevermore or forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Okay. So he says, I'm the living one permanently, right? You could say, well, I'm the living one too. Yeah, but you, there's a date where you'll stop being the living one, right? And so will I, unless the Lord comes back. He's the living one in a permanent sense because he conquered death, because he has life in him. John talks a lot about that in his gospel. Now, if there's any doubt that this is Jesus, the son of man, the Messiah, he dispenses with that doubt right here when he says, I was, what? Dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. He went through death. He conquered death because he was the perfect human being with no sin, fully God and fully man. Because of that, and he was dead, and he paid for our sins. He's alive forever and ever. No end. Remember, Daniel, his kingdom shall have no end. How do you do that unless you live forever? There it is. I love this last phrase, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I got the keys. He's got in one hand the five stars in his pocket or somewhere. He's got the keys, metaphorically, to two things. Death itself, because he conquered death, right? He's the only one that can unlock the dead from their graves and raise them up when he shows up. Amen. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. No, no, no. You know what they all have in common? They're all dead. Right. But I love the second phrase. I hold the keys of death. By the way, who's got him temporarily on planet Earth? Satan. Since sin occurred, the wages of sin, Romans says, is death. The wages, you earn death. He's got the way to undo that curse from Genesis chapter 3. But he's also got the keys to Hades. 
What on earth is Hades? We've talked about this in this Bible study before. A little weird, but it's biblical. Hades, Greek word, Sheol, Hebrew word, okay? So don't think that's two places. It's two words that mean the same place. Hades, Greek, Sheol, Hebrew, same place. Okay, it's a place. Where is it? Over in Israel somewhere in the Middle East? No. Hades or Sheol is the place of the departed spirits who die. We live in this plane, planet Earth. We're alive. We're breathing. When we die, prior to the cross, everybody went to Hades or Sheol, same place. You say, everybody. Well, the grave, remember, is where the body went. Human beings are not God, but we are a trinity, body, soul, spirit. You with me so far? Say amen so I know you're awake. Body, soul, spirit. At death, there's a separation. Two go one way, the the non-physical part, soul, spirit, and the body goes into the grave or is burned in a fire or eaten by a shark or whatever. Don't make me paint you a picture. The point is, There's a separation at death. And before the cross, everybody went to Hades or Sheol. And turn to Luke 16. I'm in Matthew here, so that's easy. There were two compartments or sides of Hades. The good side for the faithful people like Jeremiah and Noah and Ezekiel and all believers up to the time of of the cross who went to what's called Abraham's bosom. Translation, the good side, I'll make it over here, the good side of the departed spirits. Got the picture? They're not suffering there. They're awaiting the Messiah, but it's all good. They know what they believed in is true, it's all good. Then there is a bad side. We'll make it over here so you people don't feel like I'm discriminating. Over here is the bad side of Hades, in which was every unbeliever, every sinner that didn't. Jews looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. We looked back to the coming of the Messiah. That's what saved them. It's what saves us. The bad people that were sinners, that were unbelievers, they're in the bad side of Sheol or, he, or Hades, awaiting the final judgment. But get this, they're already suffering. You say, where do you get that? Go to Luke 16. Luke 16, uh, starting in verse 19. I can't read this whole thing. It's a parable Jesus tells. But some people think it's not a parable. It's a story about the rich man and Lazarus. Why isn't it a parable, Joe? Because if it's a parable, it's the only one that has a, a, a human first name. Lazarus. All the other parables are there was a man with two sons. There was a man who divided his estate, a prodigal son. There's no names, Harry and Bill. It's just there was a man with two sons, three daughters, whatever. This has a personal name. I believe this is true. Okay. So there's a rich man, short version of the parable or story, who is a sinner. He's evil. He never receives Christ. He um, is disregards and is mean to the holy guy, which is Lazarus, who's very poor in this world, but he does believe. You with me so far? They both die. Verse 32, 
22, sorry. The time came when the beggar died, that's Lazarus. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. That's not heaven. It's the place of departed spirits for the people that believe. With me so far? The rich man also died, who was a sinner and was buried in hell. Unfortunate translation, it's not Gehenna, which is the word for the eternal state of unbelievers. It's Hades. It's the place of departed spirits that ain't good. Okay. I got news for you right now, today, 2022. No one is in hell. No one. I know some people that are really bad. Yeah, me too. Saddam Hussein, you're saying Osama bin Laden's not in hell? No, they're in Hades. Revelation 20 is where the judgment occurs, and that's when they get their ticket down, if you will. Right now, hell is empty. Wait, isn't Satan in hell having a party and ruling in hell? No. Who's got the keys to Hades and death? Christ. He's the one that sends Satan there. Satan's not the Lord of hell. Don't think that way. Okay, I lost my train of thought. Okay, it's a short track, my aunt used to say. Okay, so they, there is uh, verse 23, the rich dude that's a sinner, he's in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He's looking across a huge gulf and sees, oh, there's that Lazarus, that beggar dude, Lazarus. And he's in glory with Abraham, the father of all the Jews. So like a typical rich guy, you know what he does? He calls him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus. Who are you to be ordering Lazarus around? It cracks me up. Hey, send that poor guy who's now rich, by the way, right? Send Lazarus um, and to dip the, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. And Abraham replies, in your lifetime, you received good things, Lazarus bad. Now he's comforted here and you're in agony. There's a great chasm you can't cross over. That's the point of that. Okay, let me just finish by saying this. Currently, since the cross... The good side of Hades or Sheol is now, wait for it, empty. Empty, empty. Because since the cross, if you're a believer and you die, you are absent from the body into the good side of, no, present with the Lord. You go right to heaven. There's no waiting room. That's what it was. A waiting room for heaven, a waiting room for hell. The waiting room for hell is still full, and there's way more people there now. It's a convention center now. Amen? The waiting center for heaven is now empty. Jesus takes all of them to heaven with him when he ascends. You got the picture? So for you and I, we don't go to Abraham's bosom when we die. God forbid if we die, go right to be with the Lord. Okay, now, how many are totally confused? Raise your hand. Perfect, everybody. All right. I was dead, he says, verse 18. I'm back in Revelation. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I got the keys to death. For believers, no fear of death. It just pass into a way better existence forever. Awesome. And the keys to Hades. Not only is it locked for the bad people that are sinners that never believed, they're not getting out. That's where they're going. But the, the good side's locked too. Nobody needs to go there now. I paid the price. One commentator said, Jesus is so smart. He doesn't do what your father did, which was give you the keys. 
right? When you were too young. Jesus never gives Satan the keys, ever. Shall we keep rolling? I'm still reading notes here. I think we're good. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, permanent victory that Jesus um, achieves on the cross. Verse 19, right, therefore, he repeats the command. Remember, write down what you see. Now he's going to tell them specifically what to write. I'm going to show you by chapter what he's telling him. Watch. Write, therefore, what you have seen. That's chapter one. What is now, that's chapters two and three, the letters to the seven churches currently in Turkey. And what will take place after chapters four to 22. That's an outline of this book. Chapter one, what you've seen. Chapter two and three, what is now and what will take place later. Write it all down. Take copious notes, John. You got a pen. You got a little tablet. You got a little computer there. Take it all down. By the way, if you look at 22 chapters and you think, wait a minute, how did John remember all this? The answer is at the end of the book of John, the gospel of John. Do you remember where Jesus says, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He will bring to mind the things I said and did. Have you ever wondered, how did they remember this dialogue? And supernaturally, when they were writing, oh, yeah, he, I can remember the Sermon on the Mount now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He allows them to have tremendous memory of what goes on. Right, therefore. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the messengers or the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Notice chapter 2, verse 1 says, first letter, Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And then there's a message for that church. Each church in chapter 2 is given a report card. Two of them have nothing bad that are said. Most of them do. One of them has nothing good that's said. Most of them have, you're doing this good, you're doing this good, I like this and this, but I have this against you. You'll see it in Ephesus. You've left your first love, he says. But one of the churches, as I said, there's nothing good written. Okay. Um, do we want to talk anymore? So the lampstands are the seven churches shining in a dark world. Keep in mind, as I said, the letters and this whole book, every word of it is for you, as well as those people living at those churches in Turkey in the first century, at the end of the first century. Both are true. The word of God has relevance for every single human being. Um, what's the point? He doesn't write He's not writing to individual Christians. Well, he's writing to the pastors, but to be distributed to the church. What's your point, Joe? Listen, I think there is no such thing as, this is a reference from a TV show. If you're too young, you're not going to get this. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Just me and my Bible and God. I don't go to church. I don't go to Bible studies. I just sort of have my own relationship with Jesus in my own way. Not biblical. Churches. That's the mode 
<clears throat> for society, the building block God made was the family, husband, wife, not two men, two women, sorry, uh, having children, I mean, two, uh, a husband and a wife, and if they have children, children. If you're a single human being, you're no less for it. You can serve God even more, the Bible says. The building block of society, the family, the building block for the church, the method of, by which God reaches the world is lampstands, lights that shine bright enough that the surrounding community goes, what is that light in this dark world? Metaphorically, what's your point, Joe? Just this. If you're not involved in a church, stop it. Find a church. I, where we live, there aren't any good churches. Give me a break. Find one. If you have to drive 50 miles to find the church, do it. Because there's something about the corporate worship, the corporate serving, the fellowship that holds you accountable and you hold others accountable, and the prayer together. I could go on and on about why a church is an important thing. I'm so sick of hearing, I just don't believe in organized religion. To which I always say, well, do you believe in what disorganized religion then? What? God says, get in a church. Don't blame me. I'm just telling you, that's the way he rolls, okay? Think of it this way. Let me give you two analogies, kind of Jesus-like, okay? Parables. You ever have a big campfire with 13 logs burning, and it's nice and bright, and it's warm, and one of the logs shifts because it was burned, and the other log rolls off nine inches away from the fire. What's going to happen to that log burning by itself? It's going to burn out. It's a picture of the guy that goes, I don't need church. I don't need other Christians. Most Christians are so annoying. Just me and Jesus. Eh, wrong. Love God, love others, right? That's the sermon Sunday from the guy that preached here. Okay, another analogy. You ever see a river, a beautiful river in the mountains? The water's crystal clear. It's, it's a beautiful thing, right? It's pure. But then as you walk along the river, you find Oh, some of the water, when the water was higher, got stuck in this ditch over here. Now that the water level has gone down, the water's still flowing beautifully and pure, purely. Ken's listening now because he's a fisherman. I woke you up, didn't I? But that little bit of water over there that got caught in the ditch is stagnant. It's not moving. It's by itself. It's starting to stink. So are we when we go, I don't need church, just me and Jesus. Wrong. Prayer, praise, proclamation of the word, the three Ps. That's what's supposed to go on in a church. Can you pray by yourself? Yes. Can you proclaim the word by yourself? Not really. Praise, can I, can I do that and pray? Yes, by yourself. Of course you can. But there's something about the corporate getting together with other believers. We make each other stronger. We make each other like those logs shine brighter. We make each other not stink like the water. Okay. Never thought you'd hear that word in this Bible study. Chapter two. Are we ready for chapter two? Yeah, we're just about out of time, but let's keep going. Uh, these are the letters to the seven churches. Who wrote these? Jesus writes to the seven churches. They are literal churches in Turkey at the end of the first century. That's who he's writing to that we're positive of. Here's what we're not positive of, okay? 
wait, let me tell you one more thing we're positive about. We're positive that each church's letter has something for everybody here. He who has an ear, let him hear, okay? The book is a mirror. We're supposed to see ourselves and see our spiritual condition. Here's what we're not sure about. Some have said that these seven letters, G. Campbell Morgan is a great Bible scholar. He's one of the ones that believes this. There aren't a lot of them, but there are scholars that believe that these seven letters are also seven successive eras of church history. Ephesus, the apostolic period, right? First century. Um, Smyrna, the period of persecution, century, a few centuries after that. Pergamum, the times of union with the state of Rome, third, fourth, fifth, right around their centuries. I may get these wrong. Thyatira, the dark ages. Sardis, the reformation, right? Um, Philadelphia, the evangelization movement, modern church history, okay? That's where a lot of people think we are now. However, some people think we're in Laodicea, which is the final period before the second advent, okay, for the second coming. The very end times, the church of Laodicea. You may say, yeah, that's the one I think we're in. I got news for you. That's the church where there's nothing good said. If that's true, we suck, basically, right? We better get our act together. I don't know that that is true. A lot of scholars dispute that. Um, I want you to watch the pattern in these letters. Every letter has, um, as I said, advice. Here's what you need to do to change. Some of the letters have a warning. If you don't repent, I'm taking your lampstand away. Um, let's dive in and at least get our feet wet, and then we'll get it more next week. Verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And we are taking the position that's not an angel because John can't write a letter to a supernatural being in heaven. He's writing to the messenger, the pastor, the elder, whatever. Ephesus, by the way, was the main one of the seven. It's the same Ephesus from Ephesians. It's the same Ephesus where we just did, remember, First and Second Timothy? Guess where Timothy was a pastor? Ephesus. Okay. So could this letter be to him? No, this is 30-something years later. Probably not. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him, <clears throat> excuse me, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. Every letter starts with a description of Jesus that goes back to chapter one, right? We already heard that. I'm the guy, the guy writing is the guy who he doesn't say Jesus, I'm the guy who holds the seven pastors in my hand. Don't miss the fact in the vision that John saw in chapter one. I meant to mention this. Where's Jesus? Watching his churches with, a, with binoculars from far away? No. He's right in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Jesus is intimately involved with every church as well as every, something's beeping, as well as every Christian's life. Okay. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands or golden lampstands. He's there intimately involved in his church. Have you seen things take place in churches where it looked terrible, but it ended up working out for good? God's moving the chess pieces around, isn't he? 
because he's involved in his churches. They are not the pastor's churches. They're not my church or your church. They're not Billy Graham's church or Joel Osteen's church. That's another story. They are God's churches, Christ's churches. Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. The first two words of verse two say it all. Jesus says, I know. You can hide stuff from each other. You can hide stuff from your spouse or your kids or your parents. You can hide stuff from everybody, not God, not Christ. He says, I know. First of all, he knows the good deeds they've been doing. Hard work. How many know having a church, being a Christian, it's hard work? He says, Ephesus, you're getting an A. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. And those things, way to go. I know your perseverance, staying with it. You didn't give up. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. That's important. Well, I like to go to a church where no one judges anyone. It's not a biblical church. If you go to a church where someone comes in and everybody goes, see the guy in the blue shirt over there? Yeah, he's cheating on his wife. See the gal over there in the yellow dress? Yeah, she's at the bar every night getting drunk. If that is going on in your church and your pastors know about it, your elders, and they're just sort of turning a blind eye, find a new church. You know what they're supposed to do? Go to them and go, hey, I love you as a sister or brother. This is what I hear is going on. Some of us have seen it. Tell me what's going on. You know that it's sin. Let's look at the scriptures. Be not drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There needs to be discipline. Listen, I'm glad this church is biblical to the point that if I did some of those things, I know there's people here that would not let me get away with it. I like that. I don't want to go to the church where they're living together, those people, but they love each other. These, this church is getting an A, at least at the beginning, because they don't tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be sent ones. That's what apostles means. They claim to be, but they're not. And you found them to be false. They compared everything to the word of God. We're going to pick this up next week. How do you do that? Is it my judgment or your judgment? Or is it all based on what's in the word of God? Of course, it's the word of God. We're going to quit for right now because we're out of time and most of you are asleep anyway. We'll pick it up here next week. Um, if you don't get the email that has the notes, which also has the link to watch the video of this or share it with somebody or the audio, which will be on the website tomorrow, just send me an email and say, I want the email with the notes, which are a longer version of this that I teach from. Shall we pray and get out of here and then eat the rest of the cake? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word. This book is so awesome. A little scary to teach, but so awesome. Thank you for this revelation of Jesus. That idea of the carpenter, it's all true. The bloody Jesus who died and suffered for our sins, it's all true, but that's not how he looks now. It's amazing what we're seeing, the glorified awesomeness of your son, Jesus, the majesty, the power, the absolute sovereignty he has. Help us to remember 
that picture, those eyes of fire, that strength, when we're having problems that seem too big for you, God, because we know they're not. And so we pray that this would be our view of Jesus, and that when we pray, we know that the most powerful one in the universe hears, loves us, and walks among his churches. Help us, each of us, to be involved in our churches, giving our time, our talent, our treasure to our, church, our churches, God, and to be intimately connected in the body of Christ. Thank you for this time. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here, make sure you say hello to people that you don't know. It's the most important thing. Everybody else on Zoom, thanks for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next time.